The scripture this morning is from Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. Then will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. Thank you, Tammy. You want to stay up here with me? Or are you good? <laughs> I'll go listen. All right. All right. This comes out of uh, the section of scripture referred to as the Revelation of John. I've heard many times throughout my journey with Jesus this referred to as the book of Revelations. And it's interesting how. These things kind of seep into our, our way of interpreting things. We refer to it as the revelations. And really, it's called the book of Revelation. Don't add an S to it. Just pay attention to how you're speaking about the scriptures. Because what happens is when you refer to it as the book of revelations, it changes the meaning. It's not a series of revelations. It's one giant revelation. And it's called the revelation of Jesus Christ. I know that this particular book, and what, what we'll do... Uh, in, in our journey together is at some point we'll get into the book of Revelation together. That should be fun, right? And, and we'll work through the book of Revelation. Um, so today what I want to do is just kind of set the framework for this particular passage because what we've been doing is situating ourselves in a question. If the resurrection of Jesus actually happened, how does that change the way in which I engage with my current world? Does it have anything to say about how I live and interact with other humans, how I interact with creation itself. Does it shape and form the way in which I'm living my life right now, or is it just all about the future when we leave this earth and go somewhere else? What are the implications of the resurrection? That's what we've been working through on this particular learning journey. And it's important to keep in mind when you're going through the book of Revelation, this, this book is probably one of those books and, and maybe you've noticed this, where people, people are either really obsessed with the book, and it's all about the book of Revelation, and you'll hear it. Like, there's certain groups of people you'll get into, and that's really all you hear is about the book of Revelation. And people are always projecting, like, trying to break codes and predict future events and looking at current world events. Is like, is the book of Revelation actually happening right now? And so there's all this speculation, and there's all kinds of uh, different groups of people that formulate themselves around the book of Revelation. And, and then there's other groups of people, and you may have noticed this as well, who are like, I don't really know what's going to happen. All I know is that in the end, it's all going to be okay, right? And so there you go. So it's got, you've got two different reactions to the book that I see uh, so often, especially among uh, Christian circles that you get into. And, I, and I've been in this for, gosh, the last 50 years of my life. I've been in this subculture of uh, American Christianity and how these things tend to rise up quite a bit in our dialogue. 
And what I want to do this morning is just kind of situate us in this book, in this particular letter, and just give us a lens to look through in terms of, again, the implications of the resurrection and what we've been talking about. So to the first century reader, hearing this read out loud in their context, if you read through the book of Revelation, you're going to see wild and crazy imagery. And to the first century reader, this would have not been uncommon or weird. They would have heard this, read this going, yeah, this is something that we're familiar with, especially to a, a, to a Jew hearing this read in their context. Now, us modern readers read this letter and go, I have no idea what's going on. So keep this in mind. To the first century reader, this would not have been a bizarre book. To us, it's a bit bizarre because this is language that we're not familiar with. But as we move through this, there's three things I want us to keep in mind. First of all, this is a letter, all right? It's a letter. It was written to seven churches in Asia Minor. John, who is writing this revelation, is writing to them as a pastor. Pastors care for their people deeply. They are driven by compassion, encouragement. They want their people to be okay. So John is writing to them as their pastor, and he wants this particular group of people living in this context to be deeply encouraged. So it's written by a specific person named John who's writing to specific persons living in specific cities at a specific time in history to meet specific needs. Am I being specific enough? There it is. All right, so John is writing as a pastor to this specific group of people in this specific, this specific context. It is also referred to as a prophecy, and its purpose is stated in verse 1. So if you're like, well, what's the purpose of this letter? Verse 1 tells you right away, and it says, to show the things which must shortly take place. So calling this letter a prophecy means that God is now revealing something that's going to require a response from those hearing it being read in that moment. In other words, how do we remain faithful as Jesus followers in a culture that is demanding our allegiance to Caesar and the Roman way of life? That's the tension that we're reading in the book of Revelation. This document is also referred to as an apocalypse. Now, this comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, which means revelation. That's why some of your translations at the very top of that, this letter, it'll say the revelation of Jesus Christ. Apocalypse can also be translated as an unveiling or a disclosure, like a pulling back of the curtain. And behind the curtain, we see Jesus Christ who's on the throne in control of the cosmos. So that gives us context. We've got a letter, we've got a prophecy, and we've got an apocalypse. But again, I want you to hear this. John is writing to this group of people as a pastor. He is trying to encourage people who are living in a world, in an environment that is becoming more and more anti-Christ. They're spinning in a direction. He is also going after their imagination. 
In order to engage people, sometimes you have to use incredible different images and ideas to capture their imagination. And that's why this is referred to as apocalyptic literature. That's the use of apocalyptic literature, is to engage people and their imagination to capture their attention. It's also important to note that in this letter alone, there are over 500 quotations and or allusions to the Old Testament. So, when you want to be a faithful reader of the book of Revelation, you had better do your best to be steeped in the entire biblical narrative, right? It's a lot of work if you think about like, hey, I just want you to tell me what it is and then I'll just go and accept that to be true. But to do the work of understanding that this is steeped in a much bigger story. And what happens so often, what we do as interpreters of the scripture, many times we take a verse or verses and we pull them out of their context and we do what is called proof texting or pretext. And when you take something out of context and you put it into another category and create an entire system of belief around that proof text or that pretext, it can lead you to some really funky conclusions about the real intent of the letter. So be mindful of that as we work through the letter this morning. That's the lens I'm encouraging you to pick up and look through as we read Revelation chapter 21, especially in light of the implications of the resurrection. Now, in chapter 21, verse 1, look at what it says again. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Now, keep in mind, these writers, especially in the, in the New Testament, are pulling from a bigger story. 500 quotations from the Old Testament. Any thoughts as to what John could be pulling from when you think about heaven and earth passing away, no sea? Is there like any images that come up from the Old Testament in your mind? Genesis, right? First page of the Bible. It's like right there. And here's John landing the plane. He's like closing off his letter by going back to Genesis chapter 1. How often do these writers seem to go back to Genesis chapter 1? Doesn't this seem to be like a consistent theme? Let's go back to Genesis chapter 1 and look at this imagery in God's created order of things. So we go back to the first page of the Bible. What do we see? God creating the heavens and the earth. And what is he creating it out of? Chaos. It says formless void, no boundaries, deep sea, just kind of like this big mess. And God, and in God, instead of just leaving it as kind of formless and void, he moves into it and begins to create order. That's what we see in the first page of God's grand story. So this big body of water, God moves into it because it represents something to a Hebraic mind or to a Jewish Listener, it's beautiful poetry that's intended to capture people's imaginations. So John is choosing to end his letter with this imagery by taking us back to Genesis chapter 1. That captures my attention. So what is he trying to get to? And then he throws in this bizarre line that really throws a lot of us off. 
And he says, in this new world, the one that is to come, there's going to be no sea. And everybody gets really sad when they hear that. What's the point of living if there's not going to be a sea in God's future world, especially those of us who love the ocean? What do you mean, no sea? Now, keep in mind, to the ancient reader, they had what I would call a a three-tiered view of reality. And that three-tiered view would be, there's the world up there, the clouds, the, the, the sky, that's stuff that we don't really know, but we see it with our eyes. So that God must live up there. And then there's our world, our earth that we live on, air, dirt, rock, sky, plant life, animals. This is the earth. And then there's the underworld. And when you read the scripture, you'll see this three-viewed tier of reality quite a bit. The heavens are up there. And then there's the earth where we live as humans. And then there's the underworld. And the underworld is what? It's where all the evil spirits live. You got the sea. I mean, the, the Jewish people were not seafaring people. They they were like, don't mess with the sea. There's things under that water we don't know about. And really, friends, do we really know much about the ocean? I mean, we kind of think we do, but it's pretty vast. And we're still learning and discovering things about the ocean, even in our complex scientific ways of thinking. But that's their view of reality. So in the beginning, God created order out of chaos. He's hovering over the surface of the deep. And in the ancient Israel's view of reality, the beauty of Genesis 1 is that God takes something without shape and begins to give it shape, structure, and goodness. He creates life. He creates plants that actually recreate themselves, like in the created order. So what do we have in Genesis chapter 1? The created order of things. This is like creation as a whole, <laughs> like, is that my mother, my mother calling me? Should I pick it up? Um, humanity as a whole is in harmony with creation and in harmony with God. So the first page of the Bible is about God taking something that seems like without form and he creates beauty. God takes a chaotic, instable environment and creates stability. I was thinking about that. So the first image of the created order of things is God is this gardener and he's created this beautiful world which humanity lives with him and with creation itself. Jesus rises from the dead in John chapter 20. People come and they meet this resurrected Jesus and who do they assume that he is? Do you remember? He's a gardener. Like all the lights on the dashboard should be blinking right now. You're like, wait, 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 wait. What do you mean? Yeah, he's the gardener. He's, he's the gardener. He's the creator. The, the writers are not just pulling this out going, ah, oh, that's, that's interesting. They thought he was the gardener. It's pointing us to something. Again, it's a bigger story going on. Is Jesus the gardener? Is he the new creator of all things? Yes. As he steps back out of the grave into the new world, it's not a mistake that he is mistaken as a gardener. Again, that is absolutely brilliant writing. So John is deeply rooted in a story. It's like we're all rooted in stories. Whether we realize it or not, there's, there's a story that we're telling ourselves. And when John envisions the new world that is to come, when he sees the new world opening up, John keeps referring to it as new, like something new is coming, a place where God's love and justice is going to fill every square inch 
of God's created order, a new world that's permeated with love and justice. Imagine a world like that, where love and justice is just flowing everywhere. But our current world is not marked by love and justice. Our current world that we live in right now is marked by chaos and tension and pain, lots of instability in our current world. But John's frame is, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God is now inviting us into a new world. So that's what's pulling us forward. That's what we've been talking about. Jesus refers to us as a new community. Paul, the writers of the New Testament, always refer to us as new creation. Uh, This is what's happening when you say yes to Jesus. You become a, a new creation. There's all of that instability of life begins to disappear and more and more stability because you're building your life on a foundation that actually can hold you. So in other words, every threat and every threat of safety and instability is going away in the new creation. All of that's gonna be removed and in its place will be stability. So let's address something in Revelation 21 that I think causes a lot of confusion about what's to come in the future. It says the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. So you as a modern reader, you read that, what are you supposed to conclude? On the surface you go, it says it in plain English, the first heaven and the first earth are going away. End of debate, right? Why do we keep talking about a renewed earth and a a renewed heaven and those coming together in God's new world being right here when the scripture so clearly states that all of that is going away? Now, to be clear, Again, we are modern people, are we not? We are situated in a story, all of us. We live in a story. I was raised in this story, and maybe this will sound familiar to you, as many of you are probably in this story as well. The story goes, the current world that we are living in is bad. It's breaking down. It's corrupted by sin and moral depravity, and God is going to destroy it someday. He's going to just get rid of this current world. And in our current state, as Christians, many of us believe that the end is near, especially today. Isn't it interesting how often you will hear people say, we are living in the book of Revelation right now. The end is coming. Like when you read the signs and you see what's happening in Israel and Palestine and Gaza, all these things happening in the world and the the pandemic and wars and rumors of wars, all these things happening. You've got to be thinking like, oh my gosh, the end has got to be coming closer and closer, especially because we've been living in such instability right now. And the goal and the story that I was raised in says ultimately we have to get out of this corrupt world and get as many people as we can out of this corrupt world and send them to another world because this world is going away. So it's going to disappear. N.T. Wright one of my favorite theologians, threw out this statement. And he says, what a person hopes for is what a person lives for. Think about that. What you hope for is what you live for. So does it matter? Absolutely it matters what you think is going to happen in the future. It has huge implications. Because if I believe that God is going to destroy this world and make a new one in the future, then how I engage in this current world is going to be shaped and formed by that story. So to say, 
it doesn't have any effect with how I live my life in this current story, I don't, I don't know if we're being honest with ourselves. To say yes, it does say a lot with how we choose to engage in the world around us. Now, I am purposely throwing this out and I'm not gonna tie up a bow for you and then send you away with a beautifully wrapped package. What I wanna do, and I think the intent of a sermon, is simply to add to the dialogue. I just wanna add to the dialogue and for you to discuss and work through it. I'm not gonna tie up Revelation for you and go, there it is, that's the interpretation, it's the right one, have a good day. Doesn't work that way. We're just trying to tease it out and live into it. And I'm doing my best as a pastor to try to interpret what I think could possibly be going on in this bigger story because I want the dialogue to happen back and forth. So look at verse five with me in 21. Listen to what it says. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new, right? I'm making everything, all things new. And then he said, write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. So question, does the text say, I am making all things new, or does the text say, I am making all new things? It really does change how you hear it. And what happens so often is we, I think in our minds, we make these jumps quite a bit because of the story that we're in. Behold, I am making all new things. That's not what the text says. It says, I'm making all things new. So what's going on there? Is God going to make all things new or is God going to make all new things? Is God going to scrap this current earth, be done with it and create a whole new one in the future where they're disconnected from one another or is God going to renew the heavens and the earth and bring them together? Is that the story? What story do you find yourselves in? Genesis chapter one says that God takes the sea and turns it into a garden. Revelation 21 says God is going to come down, bring heaven and earth together and create all things new. What's the story that you find yourselves in right now? We've been asking the question, even in Paul's writing, Paul talks about our current world, creation itself is groaning. Remember when we talked about groaning? And the earth itself is groaning. It's anticipating something that's coming. It's like, I want to be set free from all the ways that humanity is trying to destroy the earth and all the corruption and the chaos and the broken relationships, the ways that we try to undo God's good created order because of our own immorality and our own selfishness, the things that we're doing. And yet here we are in a story and if God's going to destroy the world, how does that inform and shape the way that we go forward? Now, I think, let's, let's just talk about some of the confusion. When you read a passage of scripture, like 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 12 through 13, listen to this. The material elements of the universe will flare and melt with fire, but we look for new heavens, new earth, according to his promise, in which righteousness, uprightness, freedom from sin, and right standing with God is going to abide. Now, on the surface, how are we supposed to read that? That's what it says. Then verse 1 of chapter 21. Here it is. Then I saw a new sky, a new heaven, and a new earth, for the former one and the former earth had passed away, and there no longer existed any sea. Now, if we read this on the surface, like I said, it seems like what I'm telling you, I'm like contradicting what the scripture is saying here. But we have to dig into this word new, right? We have to do some work. We have to like excavate this thing. There's two different translations of the word new. The first word that you will see 
in the biblical narratives is the word neo, right? Neo. Neo means new in time, something that hasn't yet been created and is being created. There's a, an entire network on cable called HGTV. Are you familiar with this, kids? You know this, this channel? And you have these couples like in the South, and they're like, we're gonna go, we're gonna just like rebuild all the homes in our entire little city. And it's fascinating, and we all love it, because we're like, man, they're gonna take that old craftsman, that old house, that old Victorian, and they're gonna renew it and make it beautiful again. That's, that's not Neo, that's something else. You can't take a, a home from the early 1900s and then redo it and call it a new house, can you? It's not new in time. It's renewed. It's a different kind of new. So my wife and I live in a house in Columbia City over in Seattle, and the house was built in 1918. It's a little bungalow home, you know? And right now it's orange. Like, we have an orange house. How great is that? And it just sticks out. Like, it, there's our house. It's orange, you know? And our house has been completely remodeled on the inside. We've got tile. We've got bathrooms that actually work. We've got toilets that flush. We've got, I've got a stand-up shower that's like 12 feet high. I'm just like, I can jump around in there. I don't, because I'm old and I might fall. But we've got all these, these newer amenities, but you could never say, man, that's, that's a brand new house she got going there, Kit. No, it's, a, it's not Neo. It's a different kind of new. It's been renewed. So in first in second Peter, in Revelation 21, guess what word is not being used in these passages of Scripture? Neo, not being used. The word that they are using in these particular letters is a word called kainos. And kainos is a different kind of new. Kainos is about quality. It's a different kind of quality, or it's about something being renewed. So when you're reading it on the surface, you're like, I, it just says new. Actually, it's talking about kainos new. Now, what's interesting to me is when Paul talks about those who give their lives to Jesus become a new kind of person. You know what word he uses? A kainos kind of person. You're a new creation or a new human. It's about a, a new quality of life. You're being renewed as a human. Does that mean your old person just goes away and you become a completely different human? No, there's still parts of you that remain intact. You're still you, but you're becoming a new kind of person. That's what it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. So it's a new quality. There's a, there's a, a new kind of glory that's happening inside of us, and it's hard for us to know what that's about because we don't have the categories for it. But according to the Scriptures and according to Revelation 21, our final destination is a renewed world. That's the story. If you read it, it says what's coming is a new world. So when Jesus walked out of the tomb on Easter morning, what is he giving us? He's giving us a picture of our future. He's a gardener. Like, there it is. Again, we're walking into a new world as new humans. And we talked about this last week, the resurrected Jesus. Is that the same Jesus as the one who walked on the earth with his disciples and taught and led? Is it the same Jesus, the resurrected Jesus? Is it the same one that came before? And the answer is yes, and also different, right? He's a different kind of humanity. He's got a different body, but he's still a physical body. I think the implications of that are absolutely 
fascinating to think about God creating some sort of new kind of existence in the future. So the old kind of existence is going away. A new existence is currently coming into reality. Deep, right? I've confused everybody in the room. Nobody's tithing today. That was the worst sermon I've ever heard in my life. I don't know what you're talking about, but stay with me here. Think about our current world that we're living in right now, right? Stable? <laughs> A little bit unstable. Lots of uncertainty, especially now. So much uncertainty. You just hear the announcement from the CDC and you just go, what? You can no longer wear your mask if you're vaccinated, but um, you still have to wear it in schools, in stores, in shops. And when you go here and here and here, you still have to wear your mask. You're like, so what is it? I don't really know. So confusing. Our current state of politics, a little confusing right now. Lot going on at the White House. We're hearing about it every day. Just chaos after chaos, lots of instability. This is the world that we live in. Think about how in our current world, the reality we live in, in order for certain groups of people to flourish and do well, doesn't it seem like other groups of people have to suffer? Right? If we're doing well, that doesn't mean that everybody's doing well. If we're doing well, that means another group of people are going to suffer because it's costing something. And I don't know if we think about that. If we think about the implications of uh, where we shop, how we shop, what we eat, what we don't eat, our phones, all those things. Like, where is that stuff coming from? It doesn't just happen. But there are certain groups of people that suffer, and we are doing great. We're flourishing. That's how it works in this current world. Think about your workplace. Is your workplace competitive, or is everybody out to see everybody flourish? Or is it like, man, you got to compete you got to meet the bottom line. you got to get out there and do your best because there's always somebody nipping at your heels and there's always this sense of competition that we're kind of working against one another. In order for me to experience abundance and flourishing, many times someone else has to lose. So it's like for me to win, someone else has to lose. That's the current world that we live in. Jesus comes in and he says, the kingdom of heaven is here. The, the stable, the stabilizing community of Jesus' followers is here. It's broken into our current reality. And then Jesus invites us into a new way of life. And what is the meaning in the existence of life about, according to Jesus? Love, right? It's all about love. So love, by its very nature, chooses to give itself completely and makes itself vulnerable. It says, in order for you to flourish, I'm going to give myself to you. Even if I get nothing in return, I'm giving myself to you. And so God calls us, love God. That means give your allegiance and your heart and be faithful to God in every situation. And then Jesus says, on top of that, also love your neighbor. And the two can never be separated. I'm just going to work on loving God and ignore my neighbor. You can't do that. They can't be separated. They all, they're just like connected. So Jesus says, love God, love neighbor. There's a sequence there of connection. You can't just do away with one and keep the other based on what you think your best version of reality is going forward. Because if I seek the well-being of others, even if it means me losing something, regardless of how they respond to me, that means I'm fully participating in Jesus' version of what's real. I'm choosing to give myself 
for the sake of another. Do you remember the journey we began back in January? We started to lean into the question, the big question, who is my neighbor? That's the question we're going to continue living in, even through the summer. We're going to do a journey through the Beatitudes. And this journey, we're going to call it how to be human. Like, think about the implications of what it means to be a human being. Jesus gives us a picture of what it means to be human in the world, how to live, how to interact, how to do relationships. And he gives it in a framework called the the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to situate ourselves for an entire summer in that one section of scripture. It's like, put on your seatbelts, kids. It's going to get bumpy and awesome. And it's going to be a great journey. But Jesus keeps talking about this future, this good future, some kind of new quality in which God's love and justice fills every square inch of the world. And think about actually getting to that work right now, where we're trying everything we can to make sure that God's love and justice fills every square inch of Seattle, that we get to work doing that now because we believe this is where the world is going. It's not, we're just waiting for it to happen someday. This is what we're moving towards. And you think about you being a new creation. That means everything on the outside, your physical body is breaking down. You've noticed this, right? Your physical bodies are breaking down. They're aching. As my good friend Dan Brennan said, that at a certain point, you just start circling the drain. Right, Dan? (laughs) Circling the drain from Dick Van Dyke. And that just gives me an image. And I've laughed with Dan. And it also makes me sad. But I think about the reality of like, that's, that's the reality. Our bodies are breaking down. However, your inner life, it says that Jesus is fully 100% committed to renewing you and remaking you and giving you a whole new quality of life and making you into a new kind of human being. That means that God is always at work, always, on you. Your character matters. Your hope matters. What the decisions you make actually matter. It all matters because that's who you are. So when you act like a fool and you're selfish and you're bickering and you're bitter and you're resentful, that's not you. That's like, who are you? That's not who you are. Be who you are, a new creation, a reflection of a new quality, a new kind of person that we are becoming. But in the, in the meantime, it's like we're just straddling this world and we've got one foot in this current reality but Jesus invites us to step into this new reality and it's like we're, we're going back and forth on any given day. If you think about the choices you make, it's like sometimes I lean over here and I lean into my current world and then sometimes I step fully into the kingdom of God and I choose love. That's the invitation. Which one do you want to lean into? Because this is our future. This is where we're going. That's like, that's the best possible news I could give you. Like your future What God has for you in the future is the same future that we saw in the scriptures when Jesus walked out of the grave. That's your future. Someday you're going to be walking out of the grave and you're going to come alive in ways that you never thought were imaginable. And you're going to walk right into God's good world, the new creation. And it's right here. Not somewhere else. It's right here. So get comfortable. This is going to be beautiful and good. And in the meantime, that's what we want to lean into. All right? And there it is. Simple, no bow, discuss, dialogue, spin it out, think about the implications. Receive the benediction as you prepare to step into the rest of your day and walk in the way of Jesus.
The Lord God bless you, keep you. Like, keep you. Just keep you in a place of stability where he's holding you together. May he cause his face to shine upon you, like all of it. Just shine on the dark parts of you, the broken parts of you, that you would feel the imminent glory of his light filling every space of who you are as a human being. May he lift up his countenance upon you and keep you lifted up as gravity tries to pull you down and the world tries to pull you down. May he lift you up higher and higher so that you can walk and actually see what's going on in the world. Go now in the name of the Father and the Son and in the Holy Spirit and may his shalom fill you. Grace and peace be with you.